I have in a computer file a recording of a television advertisement from the 1940s eagerly pitching Lucky Strike cigarettes. The most curious part is that the promotion is being made by a doctor in a white coat actively smoking while touting the benefits of smoking. It seems laughable, if not totally outrageous by today's standards. On this episode, I interview recent graduate Mary Blake Fletcher, who winsomely argues that today's eager embrace of screen-based technology is just as addictive and risk-filled, yet seemingly endorsed without hesitation by the culture's best and brightest. Her senior thesis was so well-written and presented that she received a standing ovation in a ballroom filled with more than 1,400 people this summer. You don't want to miss my interview with her and this profound perspective from one of our own students. Join me for this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Well, welcome to Basecamp Live. Davies Owens here is always grateful you've taken a moment to listen to this episode. It's so good to hear from so many of you. I have been blessed with uh, quite a number of emails. I think you're sending more of them these days. Info at BasecampLive.com. Maybe it's because everybody's back in school and in front of their computers. Where are you listening from? What's on your mind? Just love to hear from you. And in particular, with the reintroduction of the Climbers series, which we're going to be doing every um, few episodes. Those are just interviews with fellow Basecamp Live listeners, people who are on the journey of classical Christian education. Perhaps you are new as an educator. This was not a trajectory you were on. God had plans for you to become part of the classical Christian world, and what that transition has been like is often part of your story, or maybe you're a parent, you've seen the fruit of classical Christian education in your home. Whatever your story is, it's just good to get to connect with each other as we hike up the top of this giant mountain we call uh, raising the next generation, classical Christian education, um, kind of an 18-year hike to the top of the mountain. Along the way, we just need each other, and it's great to hear each other's stories. So many of you are discovering classical Christian education, and even if you discovered it a long time ago, still love to hear your story as well. Info at BasecampLive.com. You can text me at the 833-595-2929 or even call that number and leave a voicemail, 833-595-2929. Special thanks to our sponsor, the Focus Group, on this episode, and my good friend Brad Leyland, his wife Wendy, who were active Basecamp Live listeners. If you're not familiar with the Focus Group, they do outstanding work supporting schools and nonprofits literally around the world using their effective fundraising strategies and resources. I encourage you to look into the great work of the Focus Group. In this episode, I had the privilege of sitting down with recent graduate Mary Blake Fletcher. She's a proud graduate of Westminster Academy in Memphis, Tennessee. She attended there from 1st through 12th grade. Each year, the ACCS invites students from around the country to submit their senior thesis, and out of a sizable number of submissions, her talk was selected. Over the years, I've seen many of these presentations. They're part of the Christosom Oratory Contest that is, uh, again, a national contest, but Mary Blake's was chosen the best, and I have seen many of them, but I have never seen one that ended with a standing ovation. Obviously, well-deserved, not only in terms of her delivery and her content, but it's a topic that really hits a nerve for all of us today, given the pervasive influence of screen-based technology. This fall, Mary Blake is attending uh, Auburn University, where she plans a double major in piano performance and English literature, and when she's not in school, She can be found dancing classical ballet or teaching piano or apparently reading up on Beatles trivia. We didn't get into that, but that would be a a really interesting thing to follow up with her on. And she also has a heart for international travel. But without further ado, please join me for this interview with Mary Blake Fletcher. Well, Mary Blake Fletcher, welcome to Basecamp Live. Thank you so much for having me. It's awesome to have you here. We had a lot of fun connecting at the ACCS conference. Um, You kind of stole the show there. I don't know if you expected a standing ovation. (laughs) Yes, that was a very humbling moment for sure, I will say. I have been to a number of those conferences and I've heard a lot of students present, um, but I have never seen a standing ovation. So you obviously struck a nerve with everybody as you were talking about persuasive technology. 
So, Thank you. Yeah. Well, tell us tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you're there at Westminster Academy, or you're actually not there. You've just graduated and headed off to yes, Auburn. Sir. That's exciting. What Very you, excited. Yeah, for Auburn. What What are you going to be studying at Auburn? So I'm going to be a piano performance major and then also English, so a double major. Okay. Well, after this thesis, were you thinking about maybe doing like technology? Because you could be pretty good in that area too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think being an English major, I'm trying to just be a very well-rounded person coming out of college who can articulate myself well. And I think that, yeah, if I can do that, then yeah, I'll be able to, you know, connect with the technology industry in ways that. Yeah. Well, you definitely proved yourself. I mean, the Christosom Award is, is certainly a, a fantastic um, and very well, well-respected award for students like yourself, who basically schools are submitting their senior thesis presentations. And I guess uh, Westminster said, we're sending Mary Blake's in. And the next thing you know, you're being told you're flying to Dallas to present to a room of about 1,400 people or so. So that was a pretty big honor. It was a big honor. Yeah, I'm very thankful for it. So let's get to the topic of this thing, persuasive technology. You could have picked anything to write your senior thesis on. Why did you pick this topic? Um, okay, so there are, I think, two parts to what motivated me. Um, the first one was that over the summer, while I was, you know, frantically trying to pick a topic that would, you know, take me through the whole year um, of working on it, I watched The Social Dilemma with my parents. It's a Netflix documentary, and it's made by a lot of the founders of tech companies. So Google, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and it just basically highlights the problem of technology today. And it actually is what coined the term persuasive technology. And so I really found that documentary to be helpful. And I thought it was so, so good that they were helping to make us aware in such a big way. But it kind of left me wanting to know, well, how does that apply to me? And that kind of goes into the second part is that I had a flip phone from the time I was 16 until when I turned 18, right before I started school. And so I was really terrified that I would become addicted, even knowing everything that I knew about our, the way that our smartphones are made. And so I kind of made this as a practical application for how can I find a solution to remedy my relationship with my technology. So you had that flip phone up until... But like, at what point in the writing of this thesis? Um, I think I got a smartphone, and then a week later, we really started researching. Okay, our thesis. So it, yes, you were you created a laboratory for your own research, and <laughs> it was yourself with a smartphone. Where <laughs> to put it? Yeah. How interesting. So what what is the definition of persuasive technology? What does that mean? Yeah. So let me give you an example. Okay. Uh, before. Formal definition. If you open up your phone to the home screen right now, you'll probably see a few apps with little red notification badges on them. And I, what we don't realize is that a notification badge was purposefully designed at Apple. Um, someone intentionally chose to make it red and to have a number inside of it instead of, you know, just a blue or a green dot, because they know that if it's red specifically, that we'll respond to it. We'll click on that app with a sense of urgency and check what, um, what it's, what, it ha what notification it has for us. There are other examples too, like the, the speech bubble on their text message that, you know, tells you if your friend is typing, you know, you stay on your text message to wait to see what they'll say instead of, you know, returning to whatever you were doing before. So at its most basic, persuasive technology is a design method that's engineered and put into an app or device designed to keep you engaged on the app and also to keep coming back to it habitually. So it changes your habits and keeps you engaged. Yeah, that's very well explained. So, I mean, and when you think of it, we're you know, I guess smart a smartphone is probably the, you know, the primary device that you have in mind. I mean, I, I suppose anything today computer related has elements of persuasive technology. Is that true? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it started off as 
a design for social media companies, but it is gradually expanding to just Apple products in general. So it started on Instagram for so that they could make money off of us, you know, seeing ad revenue. But now Apple just wants you to spend as much time on your device, period, as possible. It doesn't matter what app. So yeah, and computers definitely, I think if it's made by Apple, it will have persuasive technology on it too. <laughs> so you think Apple is unique in that way? I mean, it seems like a lot of folks are on Androids. I mean, they're not immune from anything you're about to explain to us though. Is that, that's right. It's pretty right. universal. It's yeah. Android, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you, you, you had, you know, the, again, this talk that I thought was um, just so well done from a rhetorical presentation standpoint, you began very convincing, convincingly with this, rather provocative statement that you believe nicotine is not addictive um, and started talking about the cigarette uh, addictive uh, history of cigarettes and nicotine. Talk a little bit about why, why it, what's the correlation to cigarettes, nicotine and, and technology, persuasive technology. Uh, well, it's very interesting. I soon after I'd watched the social dilemma, um, I'm kind of, I, I really enjoy a good true crime podcast. And so I was listening to <laughs> one about, the CEOs of cigarette companies in the 90s walking into Congress and saying, you know, nicotine is not addictive. And so after listening to that and learning about, you know, the whistleblowers and how they hid their knowledge that nicotine was addictive, but kept lying about it, um, I've just kind of put together this correlation between there are very, very addictive properties being intentionally put into our devices, but we're kind of being lied to and told that, well, that's on you if you're addictive, addicted to your phone or social media, when really it's not you. There's being a supercomputer being pointed at your brain. It's like nicotine. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great story. I, I have um, used that as an example before of just the the unbelievable nature of our culture where we will, you know, even doctors will, and that if you're, as you're referencing back in the day would promote cigarette smoking as a, as a positive, it's a way of calming yeah. you down. It was good for you. And somewhere I have an, an ad, uh, an actual advertisement video of, a uh, uh, for lucky, I think it was lucky strikes, but it's the doctor driving around smoking the cigarettes and saying, this is such a great and wonderful thing. So, um, yeah, I don't think we can always be convinced that, that kind of our <laughs> mainstream, world today is is necessarily giving us the full story here so um no, you're right. yeah. but but then you went on to talk about just not only that kind of chemical addictions in in the case of cigarettes but you you really dove kind of holistically into this notion of the addictive nature of persuasive technology so talk about that in mental health and just what what it what did you discover in terms of the depth of this addiction yeah so um what I found in my research, just looking at study after study and multiple journalists and executives wrote on this was that there really is a significant and real um, correlation between mental health problems like rising depression and anxiety and addiction to smartphones. So it addiction to our smartphone is real, first of all, and it also does affect mental health in serious ways. So in your research, how, how, what is it, what are some of the typical hours in terms of, uh, or, or times people are looking at their phones? What was, just remind us a sense of how, how significant in 24 hours, most humans today on the face of the earth are consumed and staring at a screen. Do you, do you have those numbers? Yeah, so average on average, and you know, it changes a lot, but and really does depend on the person, but on average, and this is for teenagers, they will typically spend seven to nine hours every day looking at their phone or like with their phone on. So that could be even just a podcast playing, but typically it's not. It's a video or a, you know, which it's funny because we're so busy and consumed with you know, not, we all say we don't have enough time in the day, but really it's just kind of stolen from us by our phones. You know, how do we find seven hours to look at our phone? It's, yeah. it's kind of impossible. It's probably, I mean, how many hours of sleep do you, does the average teenager get? Yeah. I mean, probably like four, um, of which again, part of that's 
bedroom time watching movies and goofing around on the phone, no doubt. And for so many, unfortunately for so many, um, we, and, and when you talk about, and again, thinking about the, when you're speaking again of all of these things, are you thinking of a very specific, uh, group demographically? Is it your peer group? I think you referred to iGen. Yes. Yeah, so iGen is the generation born from 1995 to 2012. And it's summarized by the generation who doesn't remember a time without the internet existing. Um, so yeah, that's what, who the iGen is. Um, yeah, yeah. your caution in regards to them. Well, just kind of understand, just making sure as people are listening, we understand, kind of, are we talking about everybody? Are we talking about acutely kind of your peer group and basically students in K-12 schools today is really kind of the target group we're talking about. Although it does seem like um, the the rest of the generations are probably in some ways just as consumed, even though to your point about iGen, I've heard it referred to as the difference in a digital immigrant and a digital native. Yeah, You're, you're a digital native. I'm a digital immigrant because I definitely remember a day where these things didn't happen. And then Steve Jobs came along in June of 2007 and launched the first iPhone, um, which I, I'm, I don't know if I'm proud to say I did this, but a friend back in the day said, Hey, this thing is launching. And so I went and stood in line for about three hours and, and walked out with gen one of the iPhone, which I still have. It's kind of funny. It's like, yeah, it's a giant paperweight now, but the point is all this craziness started in 2007. So are there other, did you, as you did the research, did you find like your parents' generation, um, being in that same seven and nine hour, uh, addiction consumption? Yeah. So it's interesting because typically when we talk about smartphone addictions, I think most people are targeting that too iGen, my age, um, kind of looking down on the younger people for being addicted and whatever. But I think the reality is that this technology that's designed for to, you know, reel us in and addict us is, is not aimed at any age demographic. It's aimed at human nature and exploiting, you know, we long for community as just human beings. And so that's why social media is enticing to us in the first place, because yeah. I just, you know, so community is part of our human nature. So I would say, yeah, any age group, every age group is addicted and <laughs> it, yeah not just a younger generation. I've seen a lot of grandparents with heads down on iPads um, around, so (laughs) I'm not sure. Well, let's talk a little, we're going to take a break in a moment, but I want to dig a little bit deeper. You started talking about addiction and some of the um, reasons for it. You talked about kind of the red, red dot and just the psychology. I mean, obviously this, what seems kind of maybe inconsequential is actually very thoughtful. Lots of PhDs in psychology going, how can we make people um, just long to be attached to these things like cigarettes and nicotine. What else did you discover in the research that are evidences of this level of addiction? What, what's it doing to us? Um, well, I think it's pretty clear and, you know, studies that as much as social media and our phones are helpful, um, there, there are significant consequences. So, you know, for every minute that you spend on your phone, that is in a way isolating, like you could have spent that minute or that hour or two hours, you know, talking to a real person face to face. So I think it has definitely, and, you know, of course, COVID has also impacted our, our view of real world Mm -hmm. conversations and um, interactions with other people. So, do you so f- yeah, it changes our habits and yeah. So you do you find just as you go about your life, given, you know, your your peer groups that just, and I know this is, I, I'm proud to say students in classical Christian schools, you know, not as, this is not typical. You you can undoubtedly go and look a, a peer in the eye and have a, 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 you know, a dynamic conversation, but it seems like for most teens today, just interacting is, is far easier over text than having an actual conversation. I would say that's true for sure, but I would also hesitate to sum up teenagers in that because 
there's a level at which now because it is easier to text for everyone than just you know talk to a real person we expect that from younger kids and when you know you're taught to you know when people expect you to just text people instead of talk to them I think you will just assume that you're supposed to do that so I would say yeah it it affects everyone and um I'd say we should raise the expectation to for everyone but yeah specifically for the well let's take a quick break um and we'll be right back Mary Blake I want to hear I'm really curious um to hear kind of about your, your own experience. Cause again, how, what was it like the laboratory you set up going from a no a smartphone only, I mean, a no smartphone only flip phone, flip phone world to all of a sudden <laughs> yeah. you've got the, uh, you know, this, uh, this digital demon in your hand. So I want to understand kind of how you, how you approach that when you first turn that thing on, we'll be right back. It's time for another quick classical Christian Q and a with Dr. Tim Dernlin. So Tim, we classical Christian people like to use big fancy Latin phrases that um, that sometimes maybe we don't really know what we're saying. And so the word soli deo gloria is a wonderful phrase, but what does it mean? Uh, soli deo gloria means glory to God alone. And as we remember that, it helps inform our teaching. And this single phrase is best encompassed uh, by the design of classical Christian education and classical Christian schools don't exist for test scores, championships, prestige, any of that. Instead, everything is for the glory of God alone. And so when we get misaligned or um, miscalibrated, we start thinking it's about enrollment or it's about budget or it's about SAT scores or college placement and just just having that reminder that it's for the glory of God alone really refocuses us with humility and gratitude that we try and cultivate in our students. So um, a lot of folks you might see have their that in their signature line, Sole Deo Gloria or SDG, as uh, Bach did with his uh, musical pieces that he wrote on there. So it's just a, a, a neat um, a neat way to in, incorporate uh, some Latin. That's a great was a great reminder too that it is to God's glory and you do your best. So if you're if you really do your best and you're a B and a C student, you did that to God's glory. You don't need to stress about it as opposed to um, I did it. I had to get the grade to impress my parents or get to the right college. Um, it's kind of freeing, actually. Yeah. Amen. He wasn't a classical Christian educator, but uh, John Wooden, the great basketball coach, was really good at that. Just He never talked about winning or losing, and they won 10 national titles, and he just said, did you do your best? Let's just go do our best. There you go. Good old SBG. Thanks, Dr. Tim. Yeah. Check out Dr. Dernland's book on 100 questions on classical Christian education. Got a question for him to answer on Basecamp Live? Send the question to info at Basecamp Live or leave us a message by voice or text on the Basecamp hotline, 833-595-2929. That's 833-595-2929. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to Basecamp Live here chatting with Mary Blake Fletcher about her amazing research on persuasive technology. So Mary Beth, right before the break, I was, uh, you were telling me about your own, I'm calling it your own laboratory experience. So you got a, when did you get a smartphone? Let's back up. How old were you when you got that? For, I mean, sorry, when you got a flip phone, when did you first get a flip phone? Oh, um, I got a flip phone when I turned 16. Oh, yeah. wow. So, oh. And, and so you somehow <laughs> walked the face of the earth for 15 years uh, with no technology, no phone. How did you, how did you survive? <laughs> um, I think one thing that was really, really helpful for me that I just really appreciate looking back on was that all the parents in my grade at my school were really on the same page about their approach to us and technology. So, you know, my friends at school, we didn't have phones and yeah, we all got flip phones when we turned 16. So, (laughs) um, that I don't think I ever felt like isolated or so, like I was the odd one out because everyone, even once everyone got a smartphone before I did, they had all had a flip phone too. So it, yeah, how, you know, I that, didn't feel. There's a lot of uh, school administrator folks and parents listening. And I, I mean, that is 
kudos to the team at Westminster for, for, I don't know how much the school kind of orchestrated that. Was that just some really, you just have some amazing parents that said, okay, let's lock arms and make this decision. Cause that, what does that mean? You, you're basically what in 10th grade before you even got a flip phone. <laughs> yes, sir. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, I've heard a lot of, you know, parents are always asking that, like, when do we do this? And you know, that some have said, I guess, cause it's a nice rhyme, you know, wait till eight, wait till eighth grade. Um, at least. And, and so, <laughs> yeah, <Wow. laughs> which, which is actually probably very late. I mean, I think the average, I mean, what's your impression? I mean, the average child today is getting a smartphone. What was your research re- suggesting? Yeah. The average is 11 years old. Wow. Um, so that'll be fifth grade. Yeah. That yeah. sounds about right. I don't. And yeah. Well, it's, and, it's well, and, 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 and I mean, there's just so much we talk about in this. I mean, so that's, and sometimes, you know, I can remember a story a number of years ago at school where I was serving where uh, this is like a third grader. Uh, mom, dad, this, mom and dad decided to get her a Apple Watch, not a smartphone, but an Apple Watch so they could, um, you know, with cell service on it so they could send her little sweet messages all day. So the students sitting there and so it's again, yeah, it sounds sweet. So in the middle of, you know, the moment of studying, ding, ding on the watch and hey, we love you and hey, don't forget to eat your lunch and blah, blah, blah. And it sounded sweet, but it was like the teacher, I remembered calling the parents and just saying, this is so distracting. It's like every, every couple times a day, my, this child's arm is lighting up with this, with these great notes, but you know, maybe just hand write a note and put it in their lunchbox. You don't have to have their phone strapped to their arm. So there's things that I think parents do very innocently or well-intending that end up as I remember another parent years ago early on saying I, I got my daughter a smartphone because I just need to know I wanted her to be safe and I wanted to pick her up from soccer practice and needed her to be able to call me and so it was just kind of practical it was never intended to be what he later called a snake in a box <laughs> so yeah so, for sure so you you had again to my question was that was that Westminster orchestrating that was it your your parents who decided to kind of make it wait till 16 thing? Um, I think, I think I was, our grade was just really blessed by our parents in a lot of ways. And one of them was the way that they approached that altogether. You know, let, if Westminster wasn't a factor, then I think they would have made that decision still. But I think Westminster also created a community where, you know, technology didn't, it didn't feel like we needed technology to have great community. And actually it was the opposite, you know, technology usually sabotages wow. real community. And so I think, yeah, Westminster did a great job of just, you know, <laughs> keeping it, you know, keeping it practical. If you've been your whole life without one now, you know, you can yeah. go another year or two, you know, right. you, you don't need it. Yeah. Well, we're going to get in the third part into some of the solution. And I think as we'll talk more about it, it yeah, the antidote sure. really is is community. And I think for so many young people and, and adults, for that matter, the the phone is a lifeline just to emotional well-being and belonging and connecting and all these things that it has. That's not what technology is for. But mm-hmm. let me go on with a question. So here you are in 10th grade, you get a flip phone and everybody, was it like a, you know, it was just like a, everybody came in a room and they knighted you and gave you your, your flip phone or was there a, did it just sort of happen? Everybody got their birthday. I mean, how did it happen? Did everybody get it all at once? I guess is what I'm asking the flip phone in 10th grade or so. I think we all, I think we got phones the, at the age we did for actually practical reasons. Um, so for me, it was that, you know, people, millennials, don't have landlines and so i'd go over to babysit and they'd have to leave one of their phones behind for me so you know my yeah. parents were like just take the flip phone you know right. we'll get you right. okay and call them if something so that really it really was probably practical and thing. that makes sense yeah that's a good yeah for sure that's good yeah i mean the phone the purpose at its foundation is yeah, yeah it, so that i can call you you know that's it <laughs> well it is funny we still call them phones it's like well that's one of about a hundred things it does but it is a phone so, <laughs> yeah did you ever think about getting what they call a dumb phone which is kind of just it's basically kind of a cross between a flip phone and a smartphone with very limited features so maybe you could do basic texting i mean was that ever a consideration i think that is actually one what, what i ended up getting i had a nokia it was um amazing 
because yeah, I could text on it, but also when I dropped it being, you know, a clumsy <laughs> teenager, it's like a brick. So, you know, saved your parents money too. So, yeah. So, so probably that, saved so when you were, so when you were 18, they gave you that or they give you a full out Apple smartphone kind of thing. Yeah. So when I was 18, I ended up getting, I did get a, an Apple smartphone. Uh, <laughs> that it was, yeah. You're saying it, it, like, a, it was like, you're embarrassed about this. I mean, this is uh, pretty normal for so many people, but yeah. So I was kind of sad about it. Were yeah. you really? Okay. So this is, and you got it here at the beginning of your research. So what, were there any specific, um, you know, discoveries or just adjustments you ran into as you got that phone that you maybe you weren't expecting? Um, yes, for sure. I mean, I think, so I, I knew from the beginning that your smartphone is addictive. Your smartphone is addictive. It's designed to be that way. Um, but I would even, you know, 20 minutes later after like scrolling through my email, I I just think, shoot, I'm already becoming addicted. And it was so frustrating, but I still didn't do anything about it. So, so that is, yeah. So that's when I really started looking for, how can I make this speech as practical as possible for me to, you know, learn from with all my research and also for people to be able to make a change that's not too overwhelming or drastic when they hear it. Right. So did what did you start making specific decisions about how you would in, use the technology once you started going? Ooh, those red dots are pretty tempting. Better. Yeah, for sure. Um, the biggest thing I think that immediately changed my relationship with my phone, especially in regards to notifications, would be do not disturb mode. I would recommend that for everyone. <laughs> my <laughs> initial concern was, well, what if my parents call me, and you know, I need they really need me, but you, if you call twice back right. to back, it'll actually right. ring. So that is just the best thing because you have to intentionally check your phone for a text message. It does, it won't ping while right. you're, you know, right. in your homework or for me practicing piano, you know, it's not as distracting, so, um, which, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great example of a practical thing that, that should be done. I know, um, and we'll get to get to more of those in a second. So if you could pick between a world with only flip phones or smartphones, would you, which one would you choose? <laughs> this is a very good question. And um, I think what's important to know is that there is a distinction between your smartphone and persuasive technology. So your smartphone can, persuasive technology is a design method that is used and kind of injected into, if you will, a platform or your phone, you know, texting doesn't have to have that little thought bubble or the red notification to make you click on it. You know, Instagram doesn't have to predict what you'll want to see to stay on the app longer, seeing more ads. Um, you're so, there are a lot of ways that a smartphone is very helpful and then I'm, you know, there are a lot of reasons why I'm so thankful that I have one now. Um, one of those would be Google Maps. Before, when I had a flip phone, I just had to like memorize directions to wherever I was going. And I got lost a couple of times. It was terrible. But um, so, you know, Google Maps is a really, really helpful tool. But it doesn't have to know my Google right. search history to predict where I want to go, you know? So I think that the way to... My answer to that would be, I'd prefer a smartphone that is not designed to make me addicted to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what you, yeah. you need to create that. I bet that that's a, there are a lot of folks that would want that. <laughs> yeah. You're right. Cause there's some really, and, and that, that gets into, you know, another question is just, you know, you talked about the importance of technology is, um, is being able to you know, the question is, does it help us pursue the true good and beautiful, which I think is the right question we should ask about anything we do in life. Where does this take us? What does this do for us? And do you see redeeming aspects of that technology, of techno of smartphone technology? I mean, again, you've already started sharing a little bit about just the practical side of it is nice not to get lost and have a map um, and to be able to call people when you're babysitting. I mean, there's some practical things. They're not advocating we all become Amish and you know, just uh, send letters to each other. So what, what do you think in terms of re other redeeming aspects of the technology? 
Um, well, I think it is easy to look at the problem and, you know, just bemoan the existence of technology. But it is true that, you know, even social media at the beginning did really, really amazing things like finding matches for organ donors and, you know, connecting lost family members who'd been separated, you know, in a war or, you know, so there, there is power that technology has for good and for service and yeah, for building God's kingdom and spreading the gospel. Um, we just need to take it back to that as its purpose, yeah. not making money is really what it comes down to. Well, I love that you're, what I, I love your approach um, in that you are not just simply, you know, criticizing. Cause I think it's easy, especially for a lot of understandably conservative, you know, theologically, biblically sound folks who are looking at this, especially of my generation, the digital immigrants going, we didn't have it. It's all bad. We don't want any kid to have it. And then you kind of end up kind of, um, you know, undercutting the opportunities that are good. And, and, you know, and there's certainly examples of that. I, I, back in the day, actually worked in Silicon Valley um, and wrote part of my doctoral dissertation on using internet-based technology to build actually Koinonia Biblical Community presented at the 2004 Lausanne Forum in Thailand on media and technology. So I'm, you know, you're pushing my buttons on absolutely you're right. There is huge risk, but there is amazing reward um, for you know, everything that's really Oregon donors, like you said, are just getting the gospel out to the world, but we got to be really smart about that. So, um, we're going to, we, I do want to talk more about some of the solutions, but just kind of as we, um, think in terms of other aspects in your, in your research and your writing around just the dangers and some of the, especially with peers, do you find everybody's wired differently? And some folks have a lot more, I guess, stamina or wisdom or discernment, whatever word you want to use to, to not fall into that, um, maybe as much and it, but in, into the risk of the technology of persuasive technology, do you see a difference in just sort of how people are wired and kind of their natural dispositions and their likelihood of becoming addicted? Yeah. I mean, with anything, there are some people who are, yeah, genetically prone to, you know, alcoholism or other forms of addiction. But um, there's a passage in Proverbs, Proverbs 4, that um, includes uh, seeking after knowledge in the, as um, something that accompanies wisdom, facilitates wisdom. And so I would say that, you know, the way to approach technology wisely is to really educate yourself on this power that it has. So yeah, people who are not, who, you know, don't know what this, you know, is designed to do to you are definitely more at risk to be addicted because you just don't know. You don't, you don't know to be aware of right. it. Well, I'm thinking too, as a parent, you know, if you have say three kids, obviously we all know as parents, our kids are not all the same, no matter what we do, God wires them very differently. So I could see what worked for the firstborn absolutely not working for the second board. And so even though it sounded like at Westminster and your parents came together and there was kind of a defined time, like, Hey, when these students get to this age, then we will make this decision. But obviously it's, you gotta be wise. There may be some students are still not ready or, or maybe could be ready earlier. I mean, maybe there's a scenario where that would make sense in some cases, but um, I no, you're so right. Yeah. I mean, even though it was, yeah, we were, even though they were really unified on the essentials of that. Yeah. I mean, I was the last one to get a smartphone and that was not something that, you know, people looked down on me for or meant that other people didn't turn out well, you know, right. I have friends who, yeah, got a smartphone earlier than I did and have handled it beautifully and are, right. you know, right. using it for amazing things. So yeah. yeah you're, well, that's, you're so no, that's helpful. Cause I do think, again, just our human nature is we want a very prescriptive answer to this. Like, let's wait till this moment and then everything will be okay. And it's not, that's not, always, and then to your point too, just cause you received the phone did after you got it and we'll take a break right after this question. So after the big moment came and, you know, and there was this <laughs> uh, bestowing of the smartphone and you had some revelations about it. Did, did, how much interaction did you get from parents or teachers or others just kind of monitoring like hey are you doing okay are you sleeping at night now are you or were you just totally dropped off on the corner so to speak with this technology yeah I think I had friends who were um 
who encouraged me to handle it responsibly. I think my approach was, you know, oh, I don't, I don't need to get one. I'm so scared to have a smartphone because I'm not responsible enough to handle it. And, you know, I had a really good friend who told me, but you need to be responsible enough to handle it because sooner or later you're going to have one, you know, whether you want. That's right. Community is, yes, very essential to staying away from that addiction. Yeah. Well, I've always, it's entering as you're getting ready to go to 13th grade, as I like to describe freshman year college. Um, There's somehow in our parents' minds, I think we, maybe even educators too, that like everything like 10th to 11th, 11th to 12th. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're totally fine now. You go do 13th grade all by yourself and just <laughs> yeah. drop you off. But um, no, I think, and you do need to be responsible and you need to, so the earlier you can start allowing um, a young person to make those decisions and stumble a bit and have to decide and, you know, what to do um, with encouragement and 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 really somebody to walk next to you is super important, I think. So, well, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. I want to conclude our time just talking more about just really good practical solutions. We've already been jumping into some of them. I know you, in part of your research, I thought was interesting, you re- reveal some of the decisions that the Silicon Valley founders themselves started making for their own children. I thought these guys that are purveyors of the technology perhaps aren't such big fans of it in their own homes. So I want to hear that story. We'll be right back after the break with Mary Blake Fletcher. He's worked with families for more than 30 years as a licensed professional counselor and marriage family therapist. It's time for a quick encouragement on the best practices of raising the next generation. We call it a McCurdy moment. Keith, you talk a lot about kids having rigor and grit and this idea of struggle. It seems so counterintuitive to everything that as a parent we want to do to kind of protect our kids um, even though we want them to kind of go out into the real world someday. So help me understand the struggle. That just does not seem like something we would want. Well, I tell you, I, I'll frame it this way. I'll use an example. Um, my son's an Eagle Scout and uh, he had to do an Eagle Scout project. And of course he's helped many of his other buddies on their Eagle Scout projects. And in the course of that project, they had to move 10 tons of earth by hand with pickaxes and shovels. And I thought it was ridiculous. I mean, it was unbelievable what they had to do. And, and that was a struggle. It was a hard thing over multiple weekends. And it's interesting because I would tell you three things we learned from struggle I could easily see in that process for my son. You know, the first is my son, I would say, learned that most things in life that we think are going to be a big deal, by going through the struggle of it, we realize it really wasn't that big a deal. It was just hard. It was hard, but it really wasn't as earth shattering or as impossible as it may have seemed on the front end. So struggle helps us reframe really what is a big deal. The second thing is... Uh, my son learned he was a lot more capable than he thought he was. You know, when you're faced with a struggle and you have to work your way through it, you realize God made us capable. He actually did make us to operate in this broken world. Uh, And then the third is that struggle gives us a, a, a different perception about our community. We start to learn the value of others. One of the interesting things in, in the world of, of, of scouting is when you do an Eagle uh, uh, project, you can't do the project yourself. You have to enlist the help of others. And my son learned the value of having multiple other folks work with him to accomplish something that was very difficult. Hmm. And there are very few things in life, I think, that can shape those three arenas in such a way. You know, struggle gives us the raw material to, to have perspective that we really are meant to operate in this and we can do it and we can do it in a community. It does make me wonder from a parent perspective, we struggle by definition means it's going to be messy. And I think we never want to come off as messy parents or inadequate parents. And I wonder how much, how often we, we intercept the problem because it might create friction and difficulty and that might somehow look bad on us. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we, we're, we often wrap our own sense of worth up in the notion of are our children successful and happy? And, and if we can put ourselves in the mix, we, yeah. we, we can better guarantee a certain outcome Yeah. rather than letting them struggle to develop so yeah. later in life they're capable. Yeah, I guess nobody's ever sent a Christmas card with their kids struggling on it. I mean, that would never be really a great <laughs> right. Christmas card. We find other shit. So, but I think it, it speaks to that sense of, yeah. yeah, which is nothing wrong with sending a nice Christmas card. Thanks, Keith. Got a question for Keith to answer on a future McCurdy moment? Well, send it to us at info at basecamplive.com and learn more about Keith McCurdy on the speaking page on the Basecamp Live website.
Larry Blake, I know that uh, what might seem counterintuitive is that a lot of the, the, the brains, if you will, in Silicon Valley that really helped bring this smartphone technology into existence are probably the most aware of what is really going on with persuasive technology. What did you find in terms of research and how they raise their own children? Uh, yeah, it's, it's actually kind of saddening to see that um, these CEOs, designers, executives of technology companies are releasing this powerful supercomputer into the world, but then they really are keeping it completely out of their children's lives and also often out of their own. Um, there's a guy, Aza Raskin, who was in The Social Dilemma and talked about how he had to design a code, he had to code a program for himself to end his addiction to Reddit, which he helped design. And, you know, Reddit is not a very popular, but, you know, platform anymore. But, you know, it's really just an undercurrent of every app. And so it is interesting that when it comes to giving their own children this technology, yeah, these executives almost always say absolutely not. Yeah. And then design technology to, you know, block that from themselves. <laughs> that is I mean, that is quite telling. I mean, when you create something like Reddit and then you have to turn and create another solution so you'll stay off of it. I mean, that it, is that is scary is what that is to me. It is. Yeah. There's a ton of examples of that. Yeah. I mean, that's like, you know, running a cookie factory and you got to go put a cage over your head or something. So you quit eating all the cookies. I mean, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, yes, that, that that is some, well, and, and uh, what other details? I mean, so does that, again, what I had recalled was some of their, their decision, even with schooling and obviously most of them are not picking Christian is part of the filter, but they're thinking we want a low, no technology school. Is that true? Is what you found? Yeah, I haven't looked into a ton of how they've, you know, raised their kids in every aspect of that environment. But yes, I have heard, I have read and seen those two things that A, they don't give it to them, period, a smartphone at a young age. And yeah, they do tend to stay away from high tech schools. Yeah that, you know, are flaunting this new kind of fad in teaching. Yeah, that is, uh, that is, that's convincing and very telling for no doubt about that. So in your paper, I want to actually quote you here, because I think this is really interesting. Um, first, you talk about finally, this is on page seven, finally, persuasive technology is designed to change attitudes and behaviors in ways that are at, are at odds with the Christian faith. Human humans gravitate towards a tendency to choose the easiest of the options presented to us, and this applies to our spiritual lives as well. When given a choice between passive entertainment and the effort required to pursue Christian fellowship, our base instinct will drive us to choose the passive option. This obstacle is detrimental to our spiritual lives. So that's really, again, I, I was, it's like if you put a bowl of uh, Fruit Loops or a bowl of broccoli in front of a child, they're probably going to go for the Fruit Loops. Um, so we're, <laughs> yes, we're, sure. we're, we're already on the losing end of this deal. So spiritual maturity or passive entertainment. Um, talk about that tension and then what the antidote is to that, which I know you get into in terms of the opposite. You talk about the opposite of addiction is connection. So explain some of that. Yeah, no, you're right. If you, you know, ask a kid what they want, you know, they'll tell you TV and candy, probably, you know, things that are bad for them if they just pursue that all the time. You've obviously and been babysitting a good bit. You, you don't a lot of babysitting, yeah. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, for us that our version of Fruit Loops and candy and ice cream for breakfast is you know, just scrolling through Facebook or YouTube or Twitter for, you know, hours on end. And I found this personally convicting for me because, you know, I have a job that requires me to get up early to go to church so that I can help with, you know, children's ministry things during the late service. And I've been tempted multiple times to just not even sleep in, just stay at home and go through my email or, you know, watch a YouTube video. And I'm, I'm just sitting there thinking, I wrote a whole paper on this. What am I doing? Avoiding going to church because of that. Um, I'd say the most important discovery I made was that the opposite of addiction is connection. And that is 
a phrase that I got from a an expert in the field of rehab, um, particularly drug rehab. And he's just, it's Johan Hari is a uh, pioneer in that field. And I think this really applies to Christianity as and our spiritual lives as well. You know, going to church and being encouraged by other believers um, is just more valuable than any text message or like on a post could be. And I think when you come away from doing those, from either of those things, you know, you will be more fulfilled by going to church and, you know, being around friends who encourage you than if you, you know, get off of YouTube after not getting to be with those friends. So do you, when you talk about the obstacle, this obstacle is detrimental to our spiritual lives, the obstacle being, you know, passive entertainment, you described it for yourself as just, it's literally a, it's hours in the day. Like I'm either going to sit here on the phone, I'm getting the car and go to church. I mean, there's that obvious physically you can't do two things at once, but are there other aspects that you've from your research in terms of why it's detrimental to our spiritual lives? Yeah, I think one, one thing that the iGen specifically is highlighted as a problem of social media and technology use is the isolation factor. Um, yeah, not only is it hours in the day, it's also, yeah, time spent with real people. Um, another thing is, you know, its impact on focus. So for me, I found auditioning for the, the piano department at Auburn, I was really stressed out about finding two extra hours in the day to practice to get ready for this. And when I, you know, went through a digital declutter and deleted all the optional things that I'd been wasting my time on, not only did I have two extra hours to practice, but I also focused so much better during that time. So, yeah, it doesn't impact just our social lives or take away hours in the day for us. It it really does affect us emotionally, mentally, deprives us of focus. Um, Yeah, it's just a constant distraction from what's important. And that, that antidote of community, what, how is it that community is, is such a, an antidote? Why, why is that the opposite of addiction? Um, I think what's interesting is that as I touched on this a little bit earlier, but social media is enticing to us in the first place because it promises constant community. Um, and that's just not what it gives. So real community with real people in the real world where you're bonding um, in just more real ways is automatically going to be in more encouraging and fulfilling than yeah scrolling you, on a screen right I mean it's do you see it as a as a compliment in some ways because I would I know I've talked to a lot of teens who said hey I'm you may be standing there, but I'm having a conversation right now with nine people. And I'm like, well, that is a community I'm not that familiar with. And so it's not the same, but it is perhaps a compliment too. So maybe when you do get to church, now you've, you pick up the conversation in a way that you would have not been able to do if you didn't have that connectivity along the way. So it's not, does that sound right? No. Yeah. You're so right. I think it's important to view your technology in any form as something that can facilitate community, not supply community. That's great. Um, That's a great way to say it. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> There's a new title for your for your paper, which, by the way, we're gonna thank you for letting us put this up into the show notes. And I would encourage folks to read your your senior thesis here in full. I mean, it's it's incredibly well written and lots of great cited works at the end that are even more. Um, deep if you want to go into this topic. So you've done a really good job of that. Well, as we kind of wind our time down, just kind of parting advice for, we've got parents and teacher educators listening. So maybe just for parents who are listening, um, is there anything, Mary Blake, that you would say, hey, I just, we've talked about a lot, but just maybe one other piece of advice or encouragement to parents? Um, well, I'm, I'd really like to try to approach this with humility because I'm an 18 year old and not a parent, but <laughs> we'll um, give you, we'll, we'll, we'll put an asterisk next to your comment that we'll know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Check back in 10 um, years. We may update the comment, but yeah, go ahead. Perfect. Um, what I'm thankful for is that 
I think my parents just prioritized making sure that I was confident in my faith above anything else. Mm. And so if a smartphone facilitates that, you know, that time will come. Um, but I would say I'm really thankful that they didn't feel pressure from other people to change their values or um, what they thought was right. And, you know, as we've said earlier, it's not a one size fits all give them a smartphone or a flip phone when they're this age. But um, yeah, above all, just, I would say be encouraged and make sure that they know they're loved by Christ above anything else. (laughs) I think that's a fantastic comment. And it certainly echoes a lot of what you talked about with community as the antidote, because if we, if we feel connected to Christ and we feel connected to our parents and to our peers, the need, just like with nicotine or any other drug, there's not a, there's not a hole in our heart that we're trying to fill up. It's already been filled with the right things. So that's really good, good wisdom. What about for, for teachers or school leaders? And again, we understand you're 18, but um, you just finished 12, 13 years of classical Christian education there at Westminster. Um, what, what words of advice or maybe encouragement to your teachers and school leaders that are out there? Yeah. I mean, I think, there were a lot of practical things that they did. Um, I mean, and for more just practical, you know, resources that can supply that suggestion, I'd go to the Center for Humane Technology. If you're a parent or educator, um, it's a company actually founded by these ex-tech executives who realized the dangers of this persuasive technology and then founded a nonprofit whose goal is to reform that industry's purpose. Um, and they have amazing resources on practical manifestations of, um, you know, just putting this into practice. Um, but a few things that my teachers did a really good job on was just, um, making decisions that removed technology to create community. So on, you know, trips and retreats, especially, and, you know, during the day at school, they, you know, they just had a phone bucket, no argument. And we just, you know, put our phones in the bucket and had a great time. You know, it did, it doesn't have to be a war, you know, it <laughs> just, it's a non-negotiable. Um, and I'm really thankful for that. Um, another thing was they did a, I think Westminster did a great job of making sure that parents and students were educated on technology and its design, its effects. We actually got to have Keith McCurdy come and he gave a talk to the upper school students and the parents on a different night. And um, he was just so insightful. And again, gave really practical tips that were encouraging and helpful. Um, But above all, I think what I'd say to teachers is that we know that as a result of persuasive technology, the students coming into your classrooms every day are really affected and by anxiety, depression, you know, issues that have come out of what we're surrounded by every day when we go home from school. And so classical classical, uh, Christian schools and teachers have done, I think, a great job of turning this into a ministry. And so just you know, being an encouragement, rooting for your students, making sure again that, you know, they're confident in the love of Christ above everything else uh, is something that I'm just so, so thankful for and will always be thankful for um, about my classical education. Wow. That's beautifully said. Mary Blake, thank you so much for your well-written, well-articulated perspectives and encouragement to us. We are definitely grateful for your work and I'm excited about your future. That's, I mean, getting the head off to Auburn and can't wait to stay in touch with you and and learn more about what you do and the doors that God opens up to you. So thank you so much. Yeah. I encourage you to do a a part two in college, somehow weave this into your studies and and, uh, continue it. I think you've, you've got the makings of a, of a great, maybe even a book here because there's a lot of folks that again, from my angle or my age and stage kind of looking down, speaking into it, but it's certainly compelling, I think, for others to look at their peers and say, well, here's somebody that 
has found joy and contentment and community and all the things I really want. And it didn't come from my phone. Maybe there's a different path here. So I hope you're a light there at Auburn to so many students. <laughs> Thank you so much. Tell I them to raise their heads up and look up off your screens and, and find this <laughs> yeah. better life. So, well, Mary, like, thanks so much. Good talking with you. Thanks for being on Basecamp Live. Thank you. Hey, Basecamp Live listeners, this is Hannah, Davies' daughter here. Thank you for tuning into this episode. I can confidently say that my kindergarten through college classical Christian education has become a critical part of my life. It formed and trained me to be a strong leader, to love God. And now as a married young adult, it's really created a foundation for me to go out into the world, a world that's getting crazier by the day. So thank you for listening to this podcast. It's absolutely critical what's being discussed here. If you could take a moment and send an email to info at basecamplive.com. Let us know where you're from, where you're listening, what's on your mind. We're so grateful that you're part of this Basecamp Live community. Thank you for being here. Please do tell a friend and give a five-star rating on your podcast listening platform. Thank you so much. See you next time.